Pod. Welcome back to Say Who Say Pod. You, 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 you switched it up on me in the intro there. Pod. I was all thrown off. The whole show's off the rails now. I, I think I think it's good to bring back in these times the in-between spaces of the college football calendar to to bring back some some of our greatest hits. And the did that uh, small expletive baby pay extra to yell is one of the better ones. <laughs> uh, he's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel. This is another episode of Say Who Say Pod, a pre-NFL scouting combine 2024 episode of Say Who Say Pod. Danny, it feels like a uh, uh, a lot longer ago in some respects than four years that I was crammed into a conference room in Indianapolis on this on this week in 2020 you... with uh, with my athletic colleagues immediately pre-pandemic. I think about that. Oh, moment that's a lot. funny. So you've been to this before. Uh, no, I was I was in Indianapolis in the uh, conference uh, conference center exhibition hall, whatever that's attached to Lucas Oil. But I wasn't actually at that. I didn't actually attend the combine. I didn't actually go to any of the stuff. It was a staff like summit thing that was held in concert with the combine because all our NFL staff was there. So I've been in Indianapolis during the combine, adjacent to the combine. I've not actually been to the combine. So you've experienced about 50% of what is the weirdest media event that I've ever been around. Yeah. The, com- the combine is is the weirdest. Like there's, I don't even know how to describe the the layers of weirdness to it because the first part you have is that all of the decision makers are there. They're in a very confined space and it's often uh, cold as a witch's teat. They're in Indianapolis, which is equipped with a series of what can only be described as hamster tunnels between the buildings. So you can walk a half a mile without ever going outside. It's very similar to Minneapolis in that way. And everybody's compressed into these places. So you run into very powerful people in the NFL in these very sort of incidental and awkward ways, like the Champs Sports Bar or the JW Marriott. And then you see reporters hanging out to run into these people. So that's that's the weirdness level number one. Then the second part is that the event that everybody's there for, which is essentially underwear olympics it's a bunch of football players doing things that are not football playing things you talk to all of them before they actually do the thing that they're there to do so the media access is provided at the exact window in which you get all anticipation and no reaction to the actual events that everyone is purportedly there for and it's just it is the weirdest place in the world. Like that's, I feel like I've covered a fair amount of things and I've been to a couple Super Bowls and I've been to UFC fights. There is nothing I've ever covered that's weirder than the freaking combine. And I, am I correct that there's no actual access to the drills? You're watching those on television from a room somewhere? Correct. The, the final day, and I don't know if they still do this, you used to be able to go in and they provided access where you could watch the actual drills happening uh, with the quarterbacks. But that was like Saturday and Sunday and you could sign up to go in. So people would go in and then measure the quarterback's throws. He completed eight of 10 passes outside the hash marks as if that meant something. But yeah, you don't get to watch the actual drills. However, I'm not sure you're missing much. (laughs) (laughs) I had to laugh. Um, I was talking to Romo Dunze earlier this week for an, an exit interview that was published at onmontlake.com on, on Monday. Which is excellent, and everyone should go read. Thank you. Um, and he had said in an interview on, I think it was with 710, that, yeah, he planned to run the 40. And I asked him about that, like, oh, you know, that's because that's always a thing, right, is a lot of guys might not run. You want to like, keep that mystery or, like, if you're a really highly thought of prospect like Odunze is, why risk running something less than what people expect of you? And he was just like, yeah, I didn't put that much thought into it. I'm- it was hilarious. That was my favorite part. You're like, this was a big decision. He's like, yeah, man, I, I just going to go and do all the stuff. And one of the things that you do is the 40. So I'm just going to do it. <laughs> yeah. He's, he basically said, like, look, I there's nothing that I don't think I'm good at and I have nothing to hide. There's no like he, I, he the way, you know, paraphrasing. He's like, I, 
he doesn't see a weakness in his game. So why hold back? Like the combine is the combine. They put together the drills. I'm going to, I'm going to go do all this stuff. But of course that plays against the backdrop is, is Marvin Harrison jr. And there's been a couple other guys say like, yeah, forget this. And I think there's probably going to be some momentum toward that becoming a thing, right? Especially for highly touted guys or like lock first rounders to just say like, why do I have to go stand in my underwear and perform for you guys? I don't want to do this. It has always been sort of the case that people have, I mean, since I first went to the combine, which was 2008, might've been 2009. Uh, no, it was 2009. Cause it was the Aaron Curry year. Um, people have said that, that it's going to go in that direction, that players are going to have enough power that they no longer go or they're going to stop taking the wonderlick or what is it now it's the s2 test that is a new version i think i hope that happens i haven't seen any evidence that that's actually going to become a trend but in in my heart of hearts i do hope that players start telling the nfl to go pound sand when it comes to the coming coming to be examined in the way in which they are What's the the steakhouse there where all the action really is? Like if you want to talk to someone, you got to be there all night on one of the nights or whatever. I think it's Elmo's, but it might be St. Elmo's. I think it's Elmo's and I confuse it with St. Elmo's because of the sh- the song or was it St. Elmo's Fire? Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's called Elmo's. Um it's got a famous shrimp cocktail. Yeah. Uh, my preference in the in, in Indianapolis Christian is the slippery noodle the slippery noodle which is i believe the oldest operating bar in the state of indiana and it's a blues bar referred to as the slippery noodle got some good sandwiches there that sounds fun when we were there uh stopped by an arcade bar that was pretty fun oh that's a little old school video games oh yeah nba jam and got a little little miss pac-man in uh my most valued possession that i have from my childhood was that my father bought uh an analog pinball machine he bought it from oh, the nice. Time Machine at the Jefferson Square Mall, and it's wooden. It's made by Bally. It's called Spin Out. Um, it only partly works right now. Uh, I, I've committed or said for years that I'm going to fix it up. But my, my father bought it when he was there testing it out. This kid came up to him and said, Mr., are you thinking about buying this? My dad was like, well, yeah, I am. And Is your mom going to let you? <laughs> like well she doesn't have that much to say about what i do and he bought brought home that damn pinball machine which is just the coolest i love old school arcade games that's awesome i had a friend growing up who uh was it pac-man i think it was they bought a they bought a pac-man arcade game and had it down in the basement that was a lot of fun living the dream man living the dream So, so arcade bars in indianapolis it's cold everybody that matters is there and a bunch of players are having to audition to to sort of show that they're worth being selected as highly as they can be uh, in what is essentially the NFL's career fair. Yeah, and it's so Zion Tupuola Fatui today, Wednesday was the day I believe defensive players met with the media. Um, Zion Tupuola Fatui still has his right arm in a sling. Um, apparently, had labrum surgery for an injury he played through this season. Uh, so, guessing we're not going to see him out there testing but of the t- other 12 washington players at the combine is there a drill an event a time a, a measurement that you're most interested to see uh because you know i we watch this team we've watched every snap that these guys have played in their college careers some of them and you feel like you have a pretty good idea of what kind of player they are but is there uh is there any one of these drills where you're really curious hmm what's this guy gonna run what's this guy gonna jump i i wonder uh i wonder where michael Penix jr checks in on some of these athleticism measurements yes probably the number one that i'm going to look at is what is Penix's 40 time um and that is simply because there is I don't think anyone imagines uh, Michael Penix in, as the quote-unquote mobile quarterback, but I do think that he moves better than people think. I'll be curious to see where he runs and how that compares to other quarterbacks in this draft, but just like where, where is his speed at? Certainly Odunze. Um, Odunze has a shot to be a top 10 pick. 
And I actually don't think that unless he runs, I mean, really something like a four seven, that there's going to be much of an impact that his his 40 time has. But that is the one thing that I think people will be looking for. Um, and I'll be interested to see to see where he runs. I, I don't think that's I don't see that as a make or break thing. And then, I, <laughs> OK, here comes the dorkiest thing I'm going to say all day. I'm really interested to see Troy Fautanu's broad jump and his three cone drill. Um, I think I think there's a really good shot that Troy Fautanu is going to be the second Husky selected. And I think I, I believe he's going to go before the end of the first round and and really could go as high as the late teens and early 20s. And and some of that, I think, might depend on how athletic he is. Um, but so those those would be the three things right off the top that I'm most interested in seeing. I will also admit to being a, a sucker for the 40 times generally. I am I'm very curious about Odunze only because Caitlin DeBoer quite proudly told uh, myself and some others in Las Vegas back in July that he had run a 437 over the offseason after putting on uh, quite a bit of muscle and bulking up um, that they had clocked him at sub four four. So I'm I'm curious to see if he runs something in line with that. I think he believes he's going to, um, and that is sort of one of the the few weaknesses that that evaluators have pointed out. Even evaluators who are exceedingly high on Romo Dunze and believe that you know he might even be the best receiver in this draft that he didn't necessarily win off the line of scrimmage with that super elite burst, you know, that he wasn't, uh, he wasn't a guy who was going to kill you with his speed down the field, that he was a really savvy route runner, extremely physical, extremely confident, extremely aggressive in his pursuit of the football. Um, but that he, you know, maybe one of the question marks is where, what is his, his top end speed? And I think he believes he has it. And so I'm real curious to see, you know, is a is a sub four four forty the difference between him going behind Malik Neighbors or ahead of Malik Neighbors? Is it is it possible that he could test his way into receiver one status, or is that is that guaranteed to Harrison already? So I'm uh, I'm very curious to see what he runs because yeah, like I've always known he was really fast. He was a 200 meter state champion in Nevada as a junior and probably mm-hmm. would have broken the state record if he'd been able to have a senior track season. It was wiped out because of COVID. And they did get him the ball in some quick throw screen situations where clearly they wanted to use his run after catch ability. That was something he really wanted to show more this this last season after being banged up a little in 2022. Um, but he wasn't a receiver that you'd say, that guy got his numbers because, man, he's just a burner like John Ross. Um, but I But I do think he's... He's going to run a, maybe a little bit faster than what some people are anticipating based off of his film. I think if he runs a four four, I think he'll be a top five pick. Um, that would that would surprise me. Um, and it's it's weird when you say like a tenth of a second making a difference in a guy that's got the 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 on field production that Rome has. Um, it would really if he runs a four four or faster than that, I really think he'll be a top five pick. And I don't know if he'll vault over Harrison, but I think he'll definitely be this, at least the second receiver chosen if that happens. I'm also curious, um, curious to see how Dom Hampton tests. Uh, I was going to, Dom Hampton and Jalen McMillan are kind of on the next list. I, I, would, I would agree with you. And I think Hampton, Hampton's really interesting because I think the NFL has some questions about where he plays. Um, and yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a ferocious hitter, man. Like he is a really big hitter and yeah, I, I would, I would agree with you. I'm real intrigued by Hampton. I think it's easy to forget how elite of an athlete Jalen McMillan is. I mean, just because he was banged up and you tried so many times to come back and got his return pushed back because of, of setbacks and everything. Um, you saw it come out in the, the PAC 12 championship game, certainly, but you know, when he's 100%, again, you know, we'll, we'll see, right. How much is he going to do? How much is he ready to do physically? Um, is is the knee thing a thing of the past, or you know, we'll we'll find out. But I'm I'd just be curious to see him move around, and you know, again, like his forty time, his vertical, um, his agility stuff. If he's one hundred percent, like he's he's gonna crush that. And and again, like kind of maybe break back into people's consciousness a little bit. Like, oh right, like Washington had 
two really athletically elite receivers last year, not just one, it's just that only one of them was healthy for the whole year. So I would be very curious just to see how he moves. Um, Daniel Jeremiah pointed out Dom Hampton, interestingly, in a, a, a conference call that he did. Though, you know, a lot, a lot of those guys always do calls kind of leading up to the combine and leading up to the draft, breaking down prospects. Daniel Jeremiah from NFL.com, I, I believe. Mm-hmm. See, yep. Yeah, NFL Network, yeah. I, or, yeah, I always, always forget where these guys actually work. It's, it's, about the, it's about the power of the individual, Danny. I think we know that by now. <laughs> now, he works, he works for the mothership. He works for the league itself, NFL Network, and then they put some of his stuff on NFL.com. But yeah, no, D- Daniel Jeremiah has previously worked in front offices as well, like someone with an actual scouting background. He was asked to break down Washington's Combine Hall, which, by the way, is, is 13 guys, um, and kind of independently threw out Dominique Hampton's name and just sort of said, like, in doing his evaluations and watching film, like, he really stood out. And, it, you know, I get why, right? He's 6'3", two, very solidly 220. He's a huge, physical, fast safety. I mean, he's a really good athlete. So curious to see how he tests, if that can, you know, turn him. He, he said he thinks he can be as, as high as a fourth-round pick, depending on how he tests at the combine. So, um, I, you know, I, I think of all these guys the attention is on and the spotlight is on and who you remember from last season. He's one who could maybe sneak up a little bit and, and make a name for himself. Um, if he, if he hasn't already. So very curious to see how things go for him as well. And with Jalen McMillan, Jalen's the kind of, his pro day will matter a lot too, but that's the kind of player that a combine can really help because you don't have a final season to really evaluate him on. If you're an NFL, if you're, if you're an NFL team trying to project what he's going to look like as a pro, you're not going to base it on what you saw last year because you know, he was dealing with a significant injury and he's trying to play through it and he's trying to get back. And it, it just not until the Pac-12 championship game, did he really get back on the field and make, make that sort of impact, but you know what kind of athlete he is or, and how he, how he was perceived going into the season a combine and then backing it up at the pro day can make a huge difference in jumping forward. I heard some people wonder if Jalen McMillan is going to get drafted. It would shock me if he's not selected. And, and I think if he comes out and, and, and really tests toward the top of the receiver class, you could see him be a third or fourth round pick. Kind of along the same lines. And, you know, let's see how Dylan Johnson moves, you know, because gosh, Last we saw him January 8th, he was nursing a foot injury, a knee injury, a high ankle sprain. That was a month and 20 days ago. So um, he's had time to recover a little bit. But, uh, I'm, you know, again, is he going to do everything? What does he run? I feel like the 40 is less important for a running back. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Unless you're an absolute burner. I think I think that's that's probably true that it's well, here's what it is. The the 40 for a running back depends on weight. It's your 40 time compared to your weight. And there's an there's an index there that's important. But the actual time of the 40 itself, unless you're Chris Johnson and are going to be one of the fastest 40 times ever for a running back, the the actual time itself is not very predictive of, of what what kind of what kind of prospect you are. Who are we missing here? Jalen Polk, Jack Westover, and Devin Culp, Roger Rosengarten, Edifu Anulafoshio, and Braylon Trice are the other the the others we haven't named yet. Trice is interesting. Um, Joe Tryon, without having much of a college resume, kind of kind of body typed his way into the first round. Yep, um, and and it was a good pick. Right. I mean, he right away had a, 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 I think, a pretty good rookie season with them. And you could see, I mean, he's got all the tools to be an NFL pass rusher. It's different with Trice in that he's not, I don't think, the the action figure, like quick, you know, quick twitch athlete that people saw in Joe Tryon won a lot with strength, um, mm-hmm. extremely powerful, you know, a, a relentless player, high motor, right, to use a, a long favored pre-draft combine term um but maybe without some of the twitchiness so like we'll see what is it what his agility drills look like and how does he move um 
because I, I don't know that he's a guy who wins in the testing. He's he's more of a film player. He's more of a guy who does have the the resume on tape of dominating tackles and wrecking pockets and pressuring the quarterback like crazy. He didn't have the sack production this last year, but was in the backfield a lot. And um, there's a lot to like on his on his tape. And again, it's you know not like he's a an unathletic guy out there on the edge, but maybe a little bit of a different path to a potential early round selection than, than what Tryon had. It would really surprise me if, if Trice is not selected by the end of the third round, because I, I do think that he's a really solid player and he's someone that could fit as a, as a defensive end in a three, four. And I think he can also play on a four, three line. Like he's got some more versatility. I think, Tupuola Fatui has more sort of variance where I could see a team being really excited by him and drafting him higher than Trice because of his speed coming off the edge. But I also think that, well, ZTF plays a more valuable role. Like the high end guys on a defense, the highest paid guys on a defense are the speed rushers off the edge. Uh, the free agent class is a little deeper this year with, with edge rushers. And Trice is more. I think you, he's more predictable. You know that he is going to be an important part of your, of your defensive line rotation. And you know that he can play multiple spots, whether you're a 3-4 or 4-3 team. But he's not, he's not that speed edge rusher, which is sort of that's the guys that get drafted in the first 10 spots. That's the people that are most highly prioritized. But I would be shocked if Trice isn't there if isn't chosen in the first three rounds, I could see ZTF going higher than him. I can also see ZTF waiting later and not going as high. Are we in agreement that uh, Tuli Latuli Nasanoa was Washington's best player not invited? Yes. And unfortunately, and this is just the pecking order, I see Tuli very much like I saw Miles Bryant, which is I think that he is going to have a five-year NFL career. Because I think he's a big-ass dude who's really strong and who makes a difference at the point of attack. It's just that the, the, he, he is not someone who's, who's, who's sort of testing scores and profile that makes people say we're going to use a draft pick on him. Um, I, it's possible he'll still get picked, but I also look at him and I'm like, I think that guy's going to play five years in the NFL. I just how hard he works, how freaking big he is. It's just that defensive tackles are an undervalued. There's tremendous longevity for the position, but they're never as highly valued in my opinion as, as the roles they play on teams. Yeah. And he's even in recruiting and he was a big recruit just because he, he's so strong. It was such a, such a dominant force in the middle, but even like in recruiting, Typically, colleges look for the little bit taller, longer levered guys for those interior positions. He's not quite that, like you said. He doesn't have the measurements, and he won't he won't test in a way that makes you go whoa. But um, I, you know, obviously, a hugely important player for Washington. You saw how much worse they were without him on the field, uh, especially against the run. And you know, guy who just just wants to play ball. You know, he's no, no frills, doesn't have a ton to say, you know, to the media and all that. Not, not in a rude way or anything, just, just wants to play. He's all about it. And, um, I'd, I would be curious to see if he can hang on. He's, he's one maybe interested to see what the, what the interest is from scouts in him at Washington's pro day, uh, obviously yeah. going to be really important for him, um, uh, without getting that combine invite. So, um, yeah. it's funny. I would say that Puna Ford. Puna Ford was a Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year coming out of Texas. Didn't get drafted and, and has had multiple contracts in the NFL. This past year, I think he was with Buffalo, and he'd certainly played an important role for the Seahawks. He was someone, he's shorter than, than, than Latuli Asanoa is, but he had longer arms, like he's just built differently. And I think that's an example of, of that sort of thing. I do think that there is going to be a lot of interest in Tuli. It's just not going to come in the first rounds of the draft. I've seen uh, some mock drafts that have Byron Murphy, the second, the Texas D tackle going to the Seahawks. How would you feel about that? Um, I do think they need some big dudes. Uh, that coach has had a fairly good track record. I believe that Matabuike, who was, was one of the excellent defensive linemen in Baltimore, 
is out of Texas. Yeah, I was. I mean, those dudes, those dudes were legit. Like Texas is Texas's interior D line was legit um, in the, in that game. And and the reason that it didn't make more of a difference is because Penix gets rid of the ball so damn fast. But yeah, like that in where Seattle's drafting, if they ended up with him, yeah, I'd have no complaints about that. They need some bull. <laughs> The, the the Seahawks need more big dudes on defense and the Huskies need more big dudes on offensive line. Like that's <laughs> that's what I feel that the current state of affairs of the local football teams is. is. Yeah, that, I think that's accurate. Um, I definitely paying closer attention to Texas throughout the month of December um, and being, you know, being around them in whatever capacity we were in, in New Orleans, there did kind of seem to be a vibe around byron murphy that was like hey like tavondre sweat is an amazing player he's huge he's a you know a freak athlete for his size like all his accolades and attention is well earned but like this guy might actually be the better player like this yeah you know, don't don't sleep on this guy like he's just you know he's not six five and 360 pounds or whatever but like this guy's really 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 good so um wouldn't mind seeing him seeing him yeah. play for the seahawks I'd also like to say for Jack Westover, he plays a position that is almost unvalued in the NFL because I think he projects as an as a fullback slash H back. And that has always been, I mean, for 20 years now, been a death sentence for NFL prospects because there are limited teams that even use a fullback or that. That's changed because of the success of Kyle Shanahan slash Sean McVay. And it's really more Shanahan and Mike McDaniel and LaFleur. There are more teams that utilize that now. So I absolutely believe that Jack Westover will be on an NFL roster when when next season begins. And I think you could see him get drafted because there are more teams that are using that offense, which is hilarious. Yeah, I I almost can't see him not being on a roster. Um, You know, does that mean he'll be a three, four target a game guy in the NFL? I don't know. You know, maybe he'll start out contributing on special teams. He's not, he doesn't have the prototypical size, right? I mean, he's not that huge Stanford tight end athlete, um, but he is a very good athlete for his size. Obviously, extremely reliable as a pass catcher, um, fit really well within Washington's system, cut open a lot, made some mm-hmm. really tough catches too. Really tough catches, great hands. Um, really good run blocker. I mean, was was a really important player for them in the running game. He's just so versatile. I mean, can can kind of do everything. And like you said, I mean, this uh the 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 Kyle Kyle use checkification of yes. NFL offenses is is gonna play uh in his favor. Uh, Devin Culp is, is an interesting one too. I mean I, he took a step forward as a pass catcher, made um two of the most amazing catches of the season that they had was, you know, battle drops throughout his career. Um, maybe wasn't viewed as quite as reliable as Jack Westover and Westover sort of took over that role of the, their number one receiving tight end. But Culp is a pretty rare athlete for his size. I mean, he runs really well. He's got that background as a uh, receiver slash wildcat running back or whatever in high school. Like he's, um, he moves like somebody who's much smaller than he is. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how he tests and I'm kind of curious to see what his NFL prospects are. I, I have a hard time pinning him down as far as what he is as an NFL player. I will be shocked if he's not picked by the end of the fifth round. And some of that's based so? on the, the, yeah, the legacy of the position, how NFL teams value tight ends, like where the, the more pass catching tight end, um, Colt doesn't fit toward that. But he does. I I do believe he's a very physical run blocker, and he's someone that teams are going to see as an inline tight end who receives is a better receiving threat. Teams are going to look at what happened with Will Disley when when the the Seahawks drafted Will Disley. There was a a very firm feeling that was a surprise. Wow, nobody thought he, he would go that high, and he's a converted defensive lineman. And and what you saw from him was that he caught the ball way better than people gave him credit for. And he was every bit the run blocker, the physical presence on the line of scrimmage that people wanted. And when he became a free agent, it wasn't just the Seahawks that wanted to keep him. The Chargers came after him. And I mean, that's 
he's he's been been in the league six years and battled through a couple of really difficult injuries to stay in the in the NFL. And I see I see Devin Culp is very much like that. I'd be surprised if he's not off the board by the end of the fifth round. I remember when Will Disley got invited to the combine, thinking like, "Oh wow, good for him getting invited to the combine." That's I would not have anticipated that. That's a little <laughs> bit of a surprise. I think he's a fourth round pick. So what do I know? Did you have you heard the <laughs> phone call of when Schneider called him to tell him he was getting drafted? <laughs> he tells Schneider's on the phone with Disley, and Disley says, "This is John Schneider." And Disley goes, "No shit." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. He was legitimately legitimately surprised, Um, which are always the best because, man, it's such a that's such a tough day um, for a lot of players like to watch your your college career get distilled down into this this talent derby. I just I feel like I can hear a million hearts breaking uh, over the course of those three days because it is it's tough for a lot of players. Yeah, I you you would have been covering the team still. Um, I was at pi.com my my one year there covering the Seahawks when they had their big uh, 2011 draft, right? Draft that'll go down in history because one random guy at Bleacher Report gave it an F and they'll never stop talking about it. Um, I, I was reminded, like, so I was at the, the Seattle Sports Star of the Year Awards and KJ Wright was emceeing um, and they picked KJ Wright that year. And I remember that for two things. One being... He was walking in Mississippi State's commencement ceremonies uh, as John Schneider called him, and they were wondering why he was so subdued and quiet on the phone. Was is he a fifth round pick? Yes, he was fifth rounder. And uh, another one I remember him for was when he talked to us, and you know, he was asked what he thought his best attribute was or whatever. Uh, he said, "I'm really smart," and I, <laughs> I he was right. He was right. Credit where it's due. Like, hey, man, that. He's he was he was not wrong about that. Very was a very smart player. Proved to be a very smart player throughout his career. So good for him for uh, for not being too humble to point out what he thought his best attribute was. The single best quote that I've it's one of the top five quotes I've ever heard uh, came the following year after Seattle drafted Bruce Irvin and Bruce had gotten he'd ran exceptionally well at the combine. Like he he'd had the fastest forty time of any D end. Uh, there's still some people I had questions about whether he's big enough to play. They're coming out of West Virginia. And he'd gotten arrested. Um, when he, he'd gone back to Morgantown, he'd gotten arrested. He had uh, jumped up and knocked like the, the light-up sign off of a Pita Pit delivery car. That's and right. he, ended up, he ended up getting arrested <laughs> for it. And so they were asking about it, like, did you get arrested? He goes, no, I actually, I got arrested. Um, but the good Lord knew it was all BS. <laughs> Uh, I think it was the same 2011 draft class where they took John Moffat. Yes, yes. And and he started out talking to the media about how he he was a year older than he should have been at that coming out of college at that class or something cuz he had spent a year in the Peace Corps and he was like 30 seconds into the bit before he finally was like, "Nah, I'm just I'm kidding. I'm, I'm yes. just older. I I didn't join the Peace Corps." <laughs> Turn, yeah, he had us. He had us. He had us all on the line. He had us all on the line. Interesting, interesting fellow that John Moffat is. The scouting combine now that University of Washington is the thirty third NFL team. Does this become the <laughs> the weekend for massive advertisement about about the benefits of of playing and becoming a Husky? Oh yeah, I'm sure they're going to be just absolutely hammering it on social media. I mean they've they've always sent their like video guy um, to the combine, they had Which is a great idea. Yeah, was it the twenty? What? Yeah, it would have been the twenty nineteen draft. So after the the Jake Browning, Miles Gaskin crew were done after the twenty eighteen season, they had nine guys drafted. Um, you know, Chris Peterson was still the coach, and they they hit it pretty hard even then. That you know, I think at, at that after that draft, they they were then the the Pac twelve team who'd had the most players drafted in the last five years or whatever. And that might have carried forward a couple more years. Um so yeah, I'm sure you'll see it all week and weekend this week. You'll see it leading up to the draft. Um are there are are there any is there anybody out of these 13 guys um who you think is m- most likely to go undrafted slash 
like how many guys do you think end up picked out of this group? Because I, you know, I think they could have a got a chance to have have double digit uh, picks here. Yeah. I, I Edifu on Ulafosio is one I'm I'm kind of wondering about. Um, there's injury history there. He's a little bit undersized for the position. That's kind of been the story of his football career a little bit coming out of high school as a walk on, despite being a really productive player. I wonder if um, I wonder if somebody sees him him being worth a pick. The the best way to project kind of who will or won't get drafted is to go to by position value and to really look at. And in that case, it's certainly Ulofosio, um, both because of injury history and because of the, the fact that inside linebackers aren't as valuable as, as outside linebackers um, or pass rushing linebackers, guys that, that figure on the edge. So I, I think that's probably a safe bet. I think Westover, I do think Westover will get drafted. I don't have any doubts about him being on a team, but because of the, the, there's a limited number of teams that use his position or the position he projects as, in my opinion, and I might be wrong about that. There might be teams that say, yes, this guy can be an inline tight end. He, he can, what they refer to as a, as, as a Y tight end, that he doesn't have to line up in the slot. He doesn't have to be as a fullback. Like he can be an inline tight end that you count on to block a defensive lineman. Um, there might be teams. I don't, I don't think that's how teams are going to profile him, but, but that could happen. So if you're going to say that those are the two guys that I think, and then probably after that is Don Hampton. Um, and that is again, more, uh, a positional value. Uh, I don't, doubt the fact that Dom Hampton's going to have a chance to to make an NFL a regular season a 53 man roster but if you told me he's going to be undrafted like he he played a year as their rover and didn't distinguish himself in coverage which means that I think you're going to see more teams look at him strictly as a box safety and that's th- that the value in that position there, there are just more of those as opposed to someone who like, hey, we can use him as a nickelback. I don't, I don't think they look at, look at him as someone that you could have as your fifth defensive back out there. I, I think he's largely going to be looked at as a box safety. So the, uh, the record, the Washington record for draft picks in one year was a, a draft you're very familiar with, the 1998 draft. Yeah, coming off the '97 season, um, with... <laughs> which which led to one of the funnier boasts because Lamb right afterwards was like, "Who says we can't recruit?" <laughs> the natural reaction was, "Dude, you guys went to the Aloha Bowl. <laughs> you had eight draft picks. You played the Aloha Bowl. Uh, it was ten. Ten draft picks. Was it ten? Jerome. It's Payton, a good draft, man. Jerome Payton, Tony Parrish, Cam Cleland, Olin Krutz, Rashawn Sheehy, Jeremy Brigham, Jerry Jensen, Benji Olson, Fred Coleman, and Jason Chorak." Yep. And so, what's, what's weird is I think Chorak was uh, Chorak, I believe was the conference's defensive player of the year, not before the draft, but the year before that. Um, and, and Fred Coleman, uh, had, had a, had a really good career, but you look at those guys in the middle, Tony Parrish and, and Tony Parrish, uh, as well as Olin Krutz. I think those would be the two that I would single out as having had the best, pro careers jeremy brigham who was exceptionally fast i mean having two tight ends selected unfortunately cam cleland's career gets he had his eye orbital broken as a rookie in a hazing incident with the saints which just sucked um really unfortunate for him but yeah it was a really talented group and she she he tested his his combine scores especially his vertical leap were just insane you think they break it this year could they get 11 I don't think they will. If you're going to say, I'm going to guess, I would set the over under as eight and I would go, I would go over, but I don't think it's going to be 10. I think they'll have nine dudes drafted. Yeah. And I, I misspoke. It wasn't nine in 2019. It was eight. Um, so yeah, there's all, you know, I feel like every year, like, like Jackson Kirkland, you know, good example, mm-hmm. or Chris Polk going back further. There's somebody who you're just certain, you know, gets talked about really through the whole like back half of their career as an obvious you know, oh, he could maybe be a, a day two guy, and and you just assume he's going to get picked, and the day comes, and it it doesn't happen. So it does feel like there's always a guy or two like that. So, yeah, betting on the over of of ten would be a would be an aggressive play, but they've at least got a shot. 
the one thing that we never that you never know as an outsider is the the medical history and how teams will just not consider some players because of their medical history. Like I, I said last week, I think there are going to be teams that don't consider Michael Penix because of his injury history. And that doesn't mean that he's not a good player, or is, but it, but it happens. Um, that's what happened with Polk is, is people, people looked at his injury history and, and the, the, the tests and the injuries that he'd had and made a decision that he wasn't, they weren't going to use a draft pick on him. Um, Miles Jack, got drafted, but it was at the end of the second round. I mean, some people thought Miles Jack coming out of UCLA was going to be a top 10 pick. And he was, he was, he lasted until, and that's, that was strictly an injury history. Um, teams, whether you want to call it hedging their bets, but, and you, that's, that's the information that is always slowest to trickle out because a team that is not considering that player doesn't want to let anyone know they're not considering that player because that helps them hide who they're actually targeting. Um, so it becomes weird. And then you'll also hear the goofy stuff about, I, I think most of it has stopped, but the goofy stuff about test scores, whenever people talk about test scores, they are, something is going on there that doesn't reflect like, the actual player's draft prospects. Somebody is trying to create an impression that that guy is an undesirable player, whether they want him to fall or they want to justify picking someone other than him with their pick. They need to start administering the wassail to these these draft prospects Dude, i'd like to see some wassail scores has has anybody have you ever taken like one of those the wonder lick or now i think it's s2 have you ever taken one of them i haven't i've read stories that have like the sample wonder lick questions they're very strange some of them don't have correct answers right they're freaking hard and th this is i'm not gonna i i have always tested pretty well like my test scores indicate that i'm smarter than i actually am like that's and when you take those tests, they're logic, but they're a series of steps. Like they're not, it's not an easy test and it's timed. Um, so it's always funny to me when people will be like, oh, this person must be an idiot because they got a 15. Like, well, or maybe he just really doesn't test well. And that test is weird as hell. Like it's just a, it's a strange, strange exercise. What question would you ask if you were if you were a GM and you got one of the you know you got this series of interviews this parade of interviews at the combine what are what would you be interested to know that's not just like a straight football question but like I'm going to throw this guy off what am I what am I going to ask him what do you honestly feel about this process <laughs> can you tell me what it feels like to be evaluated in this way like that's honestly what I would want cuz I would want someone to me, the right answer to that or the answer that I'd be looking for is someone saying, this is exceptionally strange, but I understand that it's part of what's required on the professional path I've chosen. I'm doing everything I can to put myself in the best possible light, but it's really weird. Like that's that. And I, I might be terrible at picking a football team. Like, I just want to be clear because I might be looking for characters as opposed to, but the whole process is bizarre. The players know what they're going to be asked. They know what they're going to be tested on. They've spent months understandably and justifiably preparing to answer those questions and perform in these tests as well as possible because literally millions of dollars do hang on in the balance. And then they're supposed to pretend like this is the biggest like opportunity they've ever gotten. And golly gee willikers, I'm just thankful that you're here talking to me. They don't even get to choose where they go to work. It is, it is an insane process, soup to nuts. I remember when Elijah Molden was was preparing for the draft, uh, talking to him at pro day after his pro day, and and him saying like, "Yeah, this is, I'm just so glad like this part of it's over and we can get back to preparing to play football because preparing for the combine and preparing for testing is not preparing to play football. Um, and you gotta stay stay on top of your X's and O's and stuff so that you can can get on the board and demonstrate to teams your you know your knowledge of different concepts and schemes and everything but um the guys who really love the game and really love to play and compete hate, hate this you know which is most players i would think um it's got to be strange to then you know you've spent the last three four maybe five maybe six now in some cases years um preparing to compete and win college football games football games you know to then now we're, we're going we're to spend all this time and energy and money and resources and stuff preparing to run well and 
underwear in front of a bunch of people curious to see if my time is, you know, a tenth of a second faster than this other guy's. So it's a it's a weird deal. Um, we've we've spent uh, the majority of this show now looking ahead, but we have uh, our, our dear friend IP is asking us to look uh, look backwards a little bit, I think. It's time for a conversation with Ian McFarland. Christian, Danny, how we doing? I was uh, catching up on a post from On Mon Lake last week that I didn't get to about the stability of each position heading into the what may or may not be a spring season. I, I, I still don't know if they're holding off on that or not, given the roster issues. But I stopped halfway through the post as Christian had recapped how confident we were heading into 2023 and started to think about the guys that made up last year's team. We didn't really get a chance to recap the season. We didn't get a, a chance to you know, place historical context on the players on that team because the afternoon after the national title game, things started popping up on the internet and everything sort of blew up as it relates to Husky football. So my fundamental question is, who is going to be remembered from that team? Who is going to be celebrated as a hero? Because it's a unique group. You have a couple of really, really key players who were only here for a year, only contributed for a year or two. And there's that, I don't know, funny little thing about Seattle sports fans that they they seem to value loyalty over performance at times. Who in that on that team is going to be celebrated as a hero? Who are we going to look back at in 10 or 20 years and say, yeah, that was an all-time great. That was one of the five or 10 best players in the history of the program. I'm pretty confident in Michael Penix. I'm pretty confident in Roma Dunze. But who else? Does it go beyond that? I, uh, I'd love your opinions. And uh, hope you both have a good week. Go dogs. Go dogs. There's nobody else in the Penix Odunze tier. Um, That's right. I think you're right. Penix is on Mount Rushmore. Odunze is as popular as a non quarterback could possibly be. I would agree. I don't know that they've ever had. I mean, okay, Steve Entman. Okay, so we'll say Steve Entman would probably be... Um, Reggie was pretty popular, too. Yes. But yeah, I, 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 would, I would agree with you. He's the, the only non-quarterback, and I'm not even sure if it's not... I mean, Tuyasa Sopa was more popular. But I think it goes Tuyasa Sopo and then, and then Entman. If you were going to look at guys that are on the Odunze tier... Um, it's interesting. Who would you rank between Penix and, and Odunze? Because I think Ian does have a point there about valuing longevity. I think that as incredible as I think Penix is, I think I have a stronger sort of sentimental attachment to Odunze because he stayed through a coaching change and then came back when I thought all, all signs would have pointed for the, the best decision for him would have been to enter the draft after the 2022 season. Yeah, it, it becomes very subjective. Yes, he's, 100%. He, he's in the realm where it's, it's you couldn't throw out another name and compare him to Odunze and say, oh, well, like this person is just clearly more popular or more fondly remembered. You know, it's all it's all split in hairs. Um, he's, he's at that level. I think there are people who grew up watching Napoleon Kaufman who would say yeah. it'd be it'd be hard to put a whole lot of people ahead of him. And, you know, high profile position at the time, much more high profile than it is now um extremely exciting right electric every yep. time he touched the ball you 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 kind of held your breath maybe this is where one where he rips off a touchdown um super productive he set the career rushing record there was Heisman buzz around him going into his last year he played all four years at yep. Washington um he was good enough to play at least a little bit as a true freshman on the 1991 team so he does, even though he wasn't a key player for them, he does have that attachment to the most legendary season they've ever had. So I think Kaufman, you know, so hard to go back this far, but like in terms of star power, um, 
Hugh McElhaney probably mm-hmm. deserves to be in the conversation as does Sonny Six Killer. Yep. Um, cover of Sports Illustrated was, yep. you know, fan favorite. Um, again, go back. People who watched Sonny Six Killer play for Washington could tell you just how popular he was, just what it was like to watch to watch that guy play for the Huskies. So, um, again, it is it's very subjective. But like, I think that's I think that's the tier, right? That's the conversation. Um, and he's he's right up there. Like, it had been interesting if Reggie Williams had done what he had done for a team that went 14 and one and, mm-hmm. and played for a title. Uh, you know, obviously he was extremely popular more recently. Miles Gaskin, you know, yep. Gaskin checked every box, right? A four year player, local, not just local, but Seattle, mm-hmm. not just Seattle, but O'Day yep. right down the street. Um, I think he was from Linwood, but still close enough. Um, set the rushing record, made a ton of big plays, um, played for a playoff team, played in a Rose Bowl, two conference championships, um, and was, you know, an integral part of, of all of that. So, you know, it, it, it becomes a matter of personal preference when you're talking about most popular, but like, I, I don't know what more a receiver at Washington could have done to become more popular than, than Romo Dunze did. Like you'd be at Husky stadium and listen to the offensive introductions and the largest ovation went to Michael Penix, excuse me, went to Michael Penix Jr. every time. But like the cheer that went up for when Romo Dunze was announced every game was was pretty close. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. If you're going to say third most popular player off this team, there's a lot of candidates. There are. I, I, think, it, I think it might be Jalen McMillan. Yeah. I want to put Fautanu there, but that's because of my perceived, like my belief on his importance and his ability. And it's hard to be a tackle and get that kind of, unfortunately for him, he doesn't have a first name of a president like Lincoln Kennedy did. Yeah. Yeah. But it is, he, I would say that I think that if you were going to talk about the importance of play, I think. Fautan is number three behind Penix and, and Odunze. But popularity, and that makes it such an interesting because I don't feel like people were underappreciated on this team. Like I think there's a lot of love for all of the players that were on. And I, I feel like people knew them, like knew Jack Westover and knew Ulafoshio and knew Jabbar Muhammad. I, I think that guys were reckoned, but the, the next most popular, it might be Jalen's up there. I mean, certainly because of the profile he had as a recruit and, and then the excitement when he was on the field and the disappointment when he was, when he was hurt, certainly the way he played in the Pac-12 championship game. It's a really interesting question. Did, uh, did Dylan Johnson play his way into that? I'm going to think of Dylan Johnson as one of the toughest players that I've ever seen play for the Washington Huskies. Like that, I, I will absolutely say, like, yeah, yeah. And it's almost not just what he did, but what he did in spite of being really obviously hurt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like where I'm like, that guy ran for a thousand yards and I could see he was limping most of the season. Like, yeah. that's, that's insane. <laughs> That is really crazy. And it had a little bit of a missing piece factor to him because, I mean, Wayne Talapapa was a good player. Yes. Very, very efficient. Um, And he was kind of a missing piece for them that he, he gave them something at running back that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Right. He was this grad student, senior, had seen it all. Great leader, extremely mature team captain type of guy. And he combined with Cam Davis to give them like a really solid one, two. And so, you kind of are trying to replace that with somebody who's played a bunch of college football and like, I feel like Dylan Johnson was the next step in that progression. Gave you a little bit more, a little bit more of a lead back, had lead back experience, um, could catch the ball really well. And, and obviously like, yeah, very tough. Um, You kind of got to be tough when you play the game the way that he does take Mm -hmm. on contact that much, you're going to get banged up. You're going to get hurt. So, but yeah, I mean, having somebody who could, put up 256 at USC um and yeah i was just going to say that christian is that the best individual performance from the season ooh 
Because I think I'd probably go Penix in the Sugar Bowl one, but then I think it's Dylan Johnson against USC. Is if we're just talking single game individual performance, <laughs> because that was a shootout and and Washington outlasted them, and it was because they had Dylan Johnson as a freaking horse that game. <laughs> it was just we're gonna let you run over the top of this Alex Grinch coordinated defense. <laughs> I would agree. I think so, because of the opponent and the stakes and everything, like Penix against Texas is number one. I, I don't know how long Washington needs to play football for someone to top that performance. I mean, yeah. for, you got to be on the stage, first of all. So I guess like until they until they get back to a semifinal game, um, you, you, you can't really say there's going to yeah. be an opportunity to top it. But yeah, I'd put Dylan Johnson number two. The thing like Odunze had so many big moments and yes. was so consistent. I mean, he's just so consistently productive. You could count on his seven or eight catches for 100 to 120 yards, whatever it was. He didn't have any one game that was like a Reggie versus uh, Marcus Trufant type of yep. game, you know? Um for pure like just statistical and like eye test dominance, Michael Penix at Michigan State is pretty hard to top. Yeah, he threw for like almost 400 yards in the first half or whatever. Finished yes. with 470 something. Yeah, that's true. The one thing, and this this is caliber of opponent does matter, right? Like because you're right about just the sheer magnificence of the performance. But the fact that Michigan State stunk and will be best remembered for whatever the hell happened with Mel Tucker sort of makes it takes a little bit of the luster off of it. Whereas like the USC Dylan Johnson's game against USC or Penix versus but it's not it's not possible to play the quarterback position better than Michael Penix played it against Michigan State. Like that's that's about as perfect of a game as you could possibly have. I think you're right, though, that. There's so many guys from this team that will be remembered fondly. Like I don't I don't know that there's any one guy where you'd say, "Man, like that that was a really important player for them that people just kind of overlooked." Um and then, you know, you can get into like, well, what are the feelings going to be toward Jabbar Muhammad for transferring to Oregon and like Kalepo and Bulo and Brailsford who who kind of uh bailed after the coaching change and um I think time will heal pretty much all of that. Maybe not come November 30th or whatever when they go play Oregon and Jabbar Muhammad starting at corner. But um, I think people will will get past a lot of that. One guy, I mean, again, he's not just local, but a legacy and also came up huge in some really big games. Carson Bruner uh, became Carson a, Bruner. a fan favorite. So he's I think he's on that list. Um, but yeah, I think for Behind Penix and Odunze, I do. I think it's it's between Jalen McMillan and Dylan Johnson, and maybe Jalen Polk a little bit too. Um, thousand yard receiver, extremely. Uh, other than that weird two game stretch where he couldn't catch anything, uh, was extremely reliable. Um, going back to twenty twenty two, also, and you know he's won at the combine this week. We didn't really talk about, but curious to see his NFL career also. Um, but yeah, I mean he, I think he became. A, a pretty popular guy too. So I, I, I just think you're right. Fans did relish in this season so much that I don't know that there's a guy who kind of went underappreciated or over like when Thule was out, that was like yes. all people were talking about going into, you know, was it the Utah game or the PAC 12 championship? Are they going to have Thule? Are they going to have Thule? Are they resting? And what are they doing? What's the plan? Like people knew just how important the D tackle who doesn't really put up a ton of productivity stats was. So um, I think I think it was a, a properly a properly appreciated team, but it is an interesting question on like who who's next behind those top two. Yeah, it's it is a really really likable team. It's funny, like because I would say like my personal favorites. Um, I thought Jack Westover's degree of difficulty on his catches was unbelievable. Like I I really like he made two or three, but Devin Culp is the same way. Devin Culp's catch against USC in the corner of the end zone. The throw and catch on that play is one of the most ridiculous plays I've ever seen in a college football game, like not just a Husky game. I thought Penix was throwing it out of bounds and he threw it back into the field of play, which physically, just the physics of it is remarkable. And then how the hell Colt caught that is a marvel, like unbelievable. 
<laughs> that that dude did everything except hit him with a lead pipe, and he still <laughs> comes down with the ball. Um, it was a really, it was a really, really fun team. I think even and this is getting more into like, you know, unsung heroes or whatever. But, but the game that Giles Jackson had against Oregon the mm-hmm. first time around, you know, yeah. all these he's your what number five receiver basically who's hurt half the year and winds up redshirting and he catches a touchdown, has a huge fourth down conversion in that game. Um, you know, they don't win that game without him. Nope. And, and and he's out there playing a ton of snaps. It's his first game of the season, probably more than he was ready for because Jalen McMillan is, is hurt and we count yeah. on him coming back this game and he tweaks his injury. And so and I think, you know, and, and he's, you know, he's got a chance to, to add to, whatever way he's remembered at Washington this next year. Cause he's, he's coming back and um, you know, hopefully he can be healthy and have a, you know, have the, the last senior year that, you know, he kind of hoped he would hold himself back to four games last year. So he could, he could return one more time, but yeah, it was, um, it was a year of they, they had their distinct stars. They had their kind of role players who made really important plays here and there. Um, can't forget Grady gross making those kicks <laughs> it's true it's true that's very very true um i would like before we wrap up i do want to acknowledge did you see steve belichick on chris long's podcast i did yeah i i would like to as someone who had expressed some deep reservations on the the sort of the public persona that steve belichick was going to affect and presuming that what we saw from him in new england and not just from his dad, but from him in his interviews in New England might predict what we would experience. I don't know how he's going to choose to come across at the University of Washington. I don't know how much that will ultimately matter in terms of his coaching. He came across as exceptionally likable in that interview. I really enjoyed listening to it. And I found myself feeling, and as someone who has had those reservations, I thought it was important for me to put on the record that, uh, I enjoyed that interview, and it also appeared that he cut his hair. Yeah, well, maybe a little bit. Ho- it was trimmed. It was trimmed. It wasn't. It wasn't full gas station attendant from uh, Klamath Falls, Oregon, when I was growing up. That that I that, that I had previously associated with with him. I do. I enjoy hearing you know coaches, players, sports figures in those settings with people who they like clearly know very well and have a yes a history with like you could just tell the chemistry and like kind of some of the inside jokes and the way they, they joke around with each other. Yeah. Great, great interview. Is it the green light with Chris long? Is that That's what it's correct. called? Yeah. yeah. Green light with Chris long. Um, was just last week. I'm sure a lot of you saw it. It was, you know, UW football cut it up and, um, got some promotional material out of it. So yeah. Interesting look into, um, his perspective and, you know, it's like one, one of my takeaways, it's a thing going from being a career NFL guy into college, like the transition, there's some different thing. You know, he talked very frankly about like, yeah, like I've got academic meetings now, you know, whoa, like this is, this is different. And, um, the recruiting tests and rules and all that stuff. So yeah, we, I would highly recommend, uh, highly recommend checking it out. It's, it's the best insight into Steve Belichick that I've heard, you know, at least since he's, since he's been hired. Yeah. Ultimately, you never really know how something's going to turn out and making a transition from the NFL to college sort of it accentuates or increases the number of variables where you're like, you're not sure it is going to be different. You don't know what Steve Belichick is going to be like coaching on a team. That's not head coached by his father, which has to be an incredibly difficult thing like that. That has to be really, really hard. And I think that's one of the things like Chris Long maybe connected with Steve over is that Chris growing growing up and played the same position as his dad. It's really hard to have your own identity in a business where your father cuts sort of this transcendent figure. I don't know how Steve is, is going to be as a college coach or as a defensive coordinator. I also don't know how much his interview persona or his public persona is actually going to matter. It's certainly not going to matter as much as how he relates to the players themselves or how much he actually is able to get the best out of players using the, the schemes that he applies. So it's, it's an interesting part of the process. And I just, my, just watching it as a reaction, I really enjoyed listening to it. Um, and I think it's, 
I, I, I want to definitely, if you haven't taken a look at it, you absolutely should because it's a, it's a good interview. It's spring ball here in a little more than a month. They going to have any dudes away? to block? We going to have seven on seven? Uh, so maybe seven offensive linemen total. Yeah, <laughs> seven, seven total. Uh, did you see the Cam Newton seven on seven? I did. <laughs> I did. People got to stop trying these elite athletes, man. Woo! Anybody who wants to tell me they could gain a yard on one yard on an NFL play that, yeah, you put me in there. I want you to go watch that. Watch how he has one dude in a headlock while he's treating the other one like a suitcase being punched by a third guy who can't even knock his hat off. And he's unbothered by it. <laughs> Thou shalt not judge a man by the goofiness of his hat. Yeah. God, it, you know, it could have it could have been a lot worse for those guys, too. That's that. Like, that's my biggest takeaway. Well, I would like to point this out. It's very possible that Cam Newton realized he shouldn't punch them because that would be actionable. So he was just going to throw them. When he first throws the dude with the backpack, it is it is a pro wrestling move. <laughs> he takes him, except that guy's not cooperating. Pro wrestling moves are executed by dudes that are actually cooperating to do it. He just took him and flung him. <laughs> yeah, it is quite the. So I I haven't. I'm sure there's been some backstory reported by now. I haven't I haven't seen it or read it. Do you know like what what prompted that? So apparently the two the two main guys in the in the physical altercation with him had previously worked for him in his seven on seven. Um, there had been tension between them, and then they said Cam was taunting their players during a matchup between their new team and Cam's team, and that Cam then reached out and grabbed one of the guys. And as, as the, the other coaches said, was choking him. And that's when the other guy jumped in. So they claim that Cam initiated the physical contact. Um, there's also, I don't have a lot of serious, like sort of analysis of on who's right and who's wrong. Cause I think the whole thing is, is absurd, but the, there's also a video of one of the guys like talking trash about Cam on video just before it happened. So I'm sure that there was a level of antagonistic talk between the two and then there was some sort of physical contact and then multiple dudes cam didn't punch anybody cam got punched by a guy he was not touching which is what really set it off um the whole thing's just crazy it's just just don't try cam newton don't don't do that that should be uh that should be a combine event. Try Cam Newton. Oh God. I was somebody asked me, like, well, what should they do? And I'm like, well, the real answer is have it Royal Rumble style. Cam Newton's in the middle. You ring the bell. First dude gets a minute with him. If he's able to last the minute, then it's going to be two on one. But they have to take on Cam one on one in succession. That seems fair to me. <laughs> oh, you got anything else this week? Uh no, I'm headed to Vegas to see you too. Oh, right on. Uh, inside at, the sphere? At the sphere. We're going to see him on, on Friday night. Um, so I'm very excited about that because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm an old man. I'm not a boomer, but I'm an old man uh, and, and really looking forward to seeing a little octoon. Right on. Well, that'll be fun. Um, Cam Newton will not be at the Combine, but 13 Washington <laughs> Huskies are. Enjoy whatever clips materialize of them sprinting and leaping and catching and juking and um, I'll probably have some thoughts on it all uh, at onmontlake.com at some point. Um, but until then, we'll talk to you next week. Go read Romo Dunze's exit interview on onmontlake.com. One of my favorite features in general on the newsletter, and it is on one of my favorite Huskies ever. I can only agree. You should read it. Oh, no, no, no. I ran through that bull junk you wrote. I ran through that. I sifted through all that. Yeah.